The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. You may recall we've been looking at Job, this oldest book of the Bible, the oldest account of an encounter between the true God and one of his children. Uh, now, certainly Genesis, as we've said, deals with the oldest things. Uh, the, books, the books of Moses, the five books of Moses, start us at the very beginning of time and take us up through uh, the death of Moses. And, um, but those books were written after Job, according to historians and, and all that we can tell from archaeology and history. And so what we have in Job is a sort of a primeval account, if you will, of God and his children and their interaction. One thing we have to remember about Job, he's, he's not as fortunate as we are. We, we've got all of the Bible, both Old and New Testament. He didn't even have the book of the law. There was nothing written for him, nothing inspired and written down for Job to look to when he ran into trouble. Aren't we blessed? Because when we have problems and we have troubles, we can go to Scripture and find help. Job didn't have the book of Job to go to when he's having troubles, but we do. <laughs> and that's something. We go to Job. Job was the standard. Job was the one that is the one that we look to. But Job didn't have anyone to look to. He didn't know. So when we're reading Job, we're going to find in the book of Job that Job's got some issues along with his friends. Um, there's some self-righteousness, there's some pride involved, but you're also going to read, as we already have, you need to understand that in that day, Job was living better than anyone else, according to God's own testimony. There's none like him in the earth, according to what God said to Satan. The other thing I'm going to keep reminding you every time we go to Job is remember that Job is not about God afflicting Job. God did not afflict Job. Where do sufferings come from? We've dealt with that last time. We talked about the fact that sometimes it can be the chastening of God, but more often it's just the result of living in a sin-cursed world. You want to blame your suffering on somebody? Look up Adam. Talk to Adam. You know, I've often remembered that, uh, I forget, I think it's in the book of Luke. It may have been in the book of Mark where Jesus comes across a blind man. And we're told that he, uh, <laughs> he sighs. He looks up into heaven when the blind man asks him to, to, to heal him, he, Jesus looks up into heaven and he sighs. He, that literally, he groans in his spirit. And I don't know what he was thinking then, but I got a suspicion. It was like, Adam, here we go again. Another problem you cause that I've got to fix. And that's, that's who we need to blame for the troubles of the world. You know, sometimes it is Satan. And in Job's case, it really was Satan. Oftentimes, you know, Satan's not omnipresent like God. He's not, he's not the... Let's, let's remember this. Satan is not the opposite of God. You don't have Satan here on one side and God here on the other, and they're battling it out. There ain't no battle between God and Satan. <laughs> In fact, the final battle we read about, everybody wants to talk about Armageddon and all this build-up to all this. Listen, the final battle's over just like that. It's just like that. He defeats them. He, he loses. Satan has no power beyond that which God has restricted him to, you see. So God and Satan are not equal. Satan is not everywhere present and nowhere absent like God, but his minions are. 
His minions are all over the place. There were devils in Christ's day that had to be cast out. It wasn't Satan himself, but it was some of his minions, some of his followers. So Satan played his part, which is to afflict God's children. God played his part, which is to keep the hedge and, and, and lower it or raise it according to his will. And we'll talk about that, as I said, later on in the book of Job. So we see where we are. Chapters 1 and 2, what great afflictions Job has endured. We're about to start chapter 3. And I want to talk about Job's patience first, but, but I want you to be thinking as we build up to chapter 3, we're going to see Job's pain break forth in a verbal way, in a very visceral way, a very heart-wrenching way. And, and, and let me just go ahead and warn you. It would be easy for us to do like his three friends and sit back as we read chapter 3 and talk about, well, Job, you're wrong here and you're not right there. And, and we are going to point some of that out. But can we, can we remember that his friends were wrong too? His friends were wrong too. And let's, and let's set aside the pride of Job that we're going to get to. Let's set aside the self-righteousness that is a little bit of a problem. And let's just think about ourselves in the place of Job. And let's put ourselves in there. So, so remember James chapter 5, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll conclude the introductory remarks with it. James chapter 5 and verse 11 gives us the summation of Job. You wonder what Job's about? You know, I heard somebody tell me one time, uh, I've heard it said, that, well, I don't like Job because I don't like what God did to Job. I don't like to read the book of Job. Well, God didn't do it to Job. And the book of Job is not about God afflicting Job or even really about Satan afflicting him. The, book, the summation of the book of Job is found in James chapter 5 and verse 11 where James is warning the children there of God about persecution. And he says, you have heard of the patience of Job. Patience is one of the themes of Job. You have heard of the patience of Job and you have seen the end of God. How that he is very pitiful and of tender mercies. If you come away from Job with any view of God other than that he is very pitiful, he is full of pity, and he's of tender mercies, we've missed the point of Job. So remember that as we look into it. So let's look at Job's patience just for me. What is the patience of Job? What is it about Job that's commendable when it's talked about the patience of Job? He is our standard that we look to in, in enduring struggles. Job has suffered things that not many people have ever suffered, if anybody. Job has suffered things that are horrible to think about. Some of you have lost children, okay? Uh, Job lost 10 children. He lost all of his children. Some of you have gone bankrupt or had problems with uh, financially, uh, financial ruin. Job lost everything he had, and he had a lot. He wasn't just out, you know, one of the good things about being poor is there's not much you can lose. My granddaddy used to say in the depression times that my granddaddy McCoo, he said, we didn't know there was a depression going on. Everything just kind of went along the same way it always had for us. <laughs> but but, but he, he lost everything. He was one of the great men of the East. And, and this man Job, this man Job was suffering beyond anything that anybody had ever heard of in that day. His friends came to see him because they had heard about how horrible uh, his luck had been, if you want to call it that, because it was something they had never heard about before. But notice what Job did and what he said. 
The first thing he did in being patient is he recognized his own unworthiness. Look in chapter 1 and verse 21. After all this destruction occurred and all of his sons were, in, were killed, his children were killed, his, he lost all of his stuff. Notice what he said. Naked came I out of my mother's womb and naked shall I return thither. You know what he's saying here? Who am I anyway to deserve anything? I came from my mother's womb with nothing. When I die, I will go home. I will go home to heaven with nothing. Everything I have will be someone else's. Who am I? In Psalm, the 22nd chapter, you don't have to turn there, but the sixth verse, we know that's a messianic psalm and that's important, but also it is a literal psalm. It's literally uh, written by David there saying uh, some things that he was feeling. And he said this, I am a worm and no man. I am a worm and no man. You know, the problem today, people tell us, is lack of self-esteem. Our children, our, our, our society has a lack of self-esteem. I suggest to you the problem today is too much self-esteem. <laughs> we, we think too highly of ourselves. You know, uh, I, I realize there is, a, there is a place you can get to where you are so depressed and so putting yourself down so badly that it's actually sinful to do that. It's actually sinful. Don't put down, you know, what God has called holy. Don't, don't you count it unholy. You know, you say, I'm nothing and God couldn't love me and God couldn't do anything to help me well that's a sin too but but in general the problem is not that we're thinking too little of ourselves brother Mackey is we think too much of ourselves you know I, I don't have to be some I'm not knocking therapy we may need it I get it there's 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 a place for that out there but listen I don't need to be schooled in how great a guy I am I've got a PhD in that I know how good I am. I know what a great, you know, looking, looking at myself in a fleshly way, it's, oh, you're great, look at you, you know. Uh, I, don't have to, I don't have to learn how to be selfish. I had four children, as you know. There wasn't a one of them that I had to teach uh, how to be selfish. <laughs> the word mine was their word almost before mom was their word, or mama, you know. They learned the word mine, you know, and that's, we, it's no problem to be self-focused and to be self-centered. The problem is not too much, uh, not uh, lack of self-esteem. It's too much self-esteem. But Job, when you see yourself as a sinner you are, as the Bible teaches us that we are, that'll knock down every bit of pride you've ever had. You know, you know what God calls Jacob in the 41st division of Isaiah? He says, Thou worm, Jacob. <laughs> you know, I, we, we, we don't, I've heard about uh, people have these little, you know, places where you have earthworms, you know, you have them, you, 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 you sort of cultivate them, if you will. You know, you're not cultivating them so you can go show them, right? You know, not like calves or sheep. You're cultivating them because they're worthless except for fish bait. <laughs> That's the only thing a worm's really worth, isn't it? It's, uh, you know, and, 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 and we're called a worm in the sight of God. When you compare the glory of man to the glory of God, there is no glory of man. It pales in comparison. Look over in Isaiah, the 40th chapter. Let's read that just for a minute together. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 6. We'll start there. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 6 you want to know what you are? You want to know what I am as, as, as humans apart from God? 
The voice said cry, and he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass, the grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. We're compared to the grass. We're almost to wintertime, right? We're almost to wintertime. We've been having struggles. We've been having to cut the grass here all summer long. All summer we've been, who's going to cut it? How are we going to get it cut? We're not going to have to worry about that very, long, very much long. You know why? Because the grass is going to fade. It's going to turn brown. It's going to die. That's what we are. It's, we're here just for, there's one place where we're called a vapor, a vapor. You know, a vapor just dissipates. It's not even like smoke. Sometimes you can detect smoke for a, a little while longer, but a vapor is just gone. Notice down in verse uh, 12, talking about God now. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and meted out heaven with a span and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure? Tell me how many particles of dust there are in our parking lot. Tell me how many particles of dust there are in your house, okay? We live on a dirt road. It's more for us probably than for some of you. Tell me how many are in a handful of dust. You can't measure it, but God has comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure. God knows exactly how many particles of dust are swirling in this room right now, and not only in this room, but throughout the entire world. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? And weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. How much does Mount Everest weigh? Not a man or scientist. There's not a scientist or, or, or mountain climber on earth can tell you. But God knows the exact measure. Who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor, hath taught him? With whom took he counsel, and who instructed him, and taught him in the path of judgment, and taught him knowledge, and showed to him the way of understanding? We talked already in a message several months ago about the omniscience of God, and can you imagine a being that you can't teach anything? You know, I've, I've been accused of that in my life. I said, you can't teach him nothing. <laughs> Well, that wasn't a compliment. That didn't mean I actually knew everything. But you can't teach God nothing, if you allow me to use bad English there. God knows it all. God has it all. There's no counselor. There's no teacher. Now, now here's what I want, to, I want to, I'm getting to here. Behold the nations, that is, all the others apart from the Jews, and, and maybe even including the Jews, every person in the world are as a drop of a bucket are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing. Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, or the beast thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. Now here's, here's the point. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted to him less than nothing. Now I can fathom nothing, but I can't fathom less than nothing. I never understood negative numbers, brother buddy. I never did really understand that. How can it be negative? Anyway. That's what we are. You and I are negative numbers in ourselves apart from God. He recognized this. Job understood this. This is the patience of Job is contained in the first two chapters, okay, primarily. There's some other ways he was paid, but primarily the patience of Job is in his response initially to all these sufferings. And the first thing was he recognized his unworthiness. You know, I love the saying that Brother Ronald Lawrence has. 
Uh, I, I heard this from his son when I was over in, in uh, Georgia not too long ago. Brother Ronald has this saying. He said, the best of man is man at best. <laughs> Think about that. The best of man is man at best. We're nothing and less than nothing. He recognized his unworthiness, and he recognized God's holiness. He recognized God's holiness. Notice he said in verse 21, going back to Job 1, The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of of the Lord. Now, we said already, I'm not going to go through it again because you can go back and get the message uh, online when I get it posted and you'll see. But, uh, but notice that he's not talking about God gave me all this stuff. I believe the reference here is to the hedge that God had put around him. God is the keeper of the hedge. Satan is the afflictor of the brethren. God had a hedge around him. The Lord gave the hedge. The Lord had taken away. But listen, blessed be the name of of the Lord. He knew God was worthy of worship no matter what happens to him in this life. You remember what we said initially when we were starting this message or this series? If you never got another blessing again in your life, you've already gotten more than you deserve. If I never receive anything from this point forward but pain and suffering and loss, you know what awaits me at my death? The glories that cannot compare to the sufferings that we've endured. Or maybe I should say it the other way. The sufferings cannot compare to the glories that will be revealed. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God is holy. He recognized that and he recognized. And that, by the way, we know that he's right here because verse 22 says, In all this Job sinned not nor charged God foolishly. We often charge God in this life foolishly. God, why'd you do this to me? Why'd you do that to me? Why'd you take this person? Why'd you make this person sick? We're charging him foolishly because he didn't do it. It's a foolish charge. It's, it's groundless. He didn't do it. And notice finally, over in chapter 2, he recognized the world's depravity. He recognized the world's depravity, the curse of sin. Look at verse 10. After his wife said, curse God and die, he said, what? Shall we receive good at the hand of God and shall we not receive evil? Shall we not receive evil? Now notice he didn't say evil at the hand of God. I always point that out because we need to remember the evil of this world. There are times, yes, when God chastens us and God does these, some things to chasten us. But, but in general, the sufferings of this present time that, that, that we have a result of the evil in the world. I'm not going to turn that. Turn and read chapter 8 sometime. Remember 818, I've already quoted it. For I, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Job is being patient. This is the patience of Job that we're talking about. Now, from this point forward in the book of Job, we have to remember something. We have to filter everything that is said, everything that we read, we have to filter it through the view of who's speaking. You have to know who's talking in order to, 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 to rightly divide the rest of the book of Job. And beginning in chapter 3, we begin to see these speakers. The first speaker is Job. Now, we're going to read, some, we're going to read this whole chapter uh, as we go through the rest of this message. But I want you to think, I want, I'm going to ask you a question. This Job's lament here. And chapter 3 reminds me of something. Does it remind you of something? I want you to think about that. And we'll come back to that 
at the end of this message. Job's lament reminds me of something. Think about if it reminds you of anything, and we'll come back to it later. So notice what happens in the end of chapter 2, verse 13, after his friends have come. Let's begin reading in verse 11. When Job's three friends heard of all this evil that was come upon him, they came, everyone from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar the Naamathite, for they had made an appointment together to come to mourn with him and to comfort him. And when they lifted up their eyes afar off and knew him not, he was so bad off they couldn't even recognize him. They lifted up their voice and wept, and they rent everyone his mantle and sprinkled dust upon their heads toward heaven, and they sat down with him upon the ground seven days and seven nights, and none spake a word unto him, for they saw that his grief was very great. His grief was very great. That word grief refers to both mental and physical and emotional pain and sorrow. And in a review of all of Job's afflictions, the, the conclusion that they reached and the conclusion that Job reached and the conclusion we should reach is that his grief now is very great. It's, it's, it's a, it's a deep-seated, powerful, uh, passionate emotion. And I want to say to you, there have been times in my life where I could identify with this. There have been times in my life, I, I can't say I've ever suffered as much as Job. But I think if you and I both, if we'll, if we'll think about it, in our lives, there have been times when our grief has approached near unto that of Job. We have felt the deep-seated anger. We've felt the passion of loss. we felt the mourning of, of losing someone or the pain and suffering of some illness and sickness. And I want us to set aside any judgmental notions about Job this morning. And I want us to think about it from his perspective and how bad he is feeling right now. You know, sometimes the best thing we can do when we come across someone in the throes of this kind of deep-seated mourning and grief is to just sit silent like his friends. I'll have to give them this. They turn out to be miserable comforters, but at least they started out being silent you know I've tried to comfort people before you know and I've had I know the trite sayings of the world you know um, I try to avoid those now but you know patting somebody on the back it'll get better with time will it really sometimes it doesn't uh, uh, it could be worse you know that's but you know really if you look at the book of Job Job was that man that probably couldn't get much worse <laughs> You know, what if you're that guy? It's like a pyramid, you know, the pyramid schemes that don't really work because somebody has to be the last one. What if you're that last one? <laughs> what if you're the guy that it's not any worse than? Nobody can, you say, well, so it's, no, they don't. <laughs> well, what about, no, you got it bad, brother. You're the worst. <laughs> you're the worst. You can't, those things don't, sometimes it's just best to be silent. Jesus doesn't always speak to us. But he's always with us. But they, say, they sat down beside him in his grief. Now listen to what happens in chapter 3. And let's just read the first few verses. After this, opened Job his mouth and cursed his day. And Job spake and said, Let the day perish wherein I was born, and the night in which it was said there is a man-child conceived. Let that day be darkness. Let not God regard it from above, neither let the light shine upon it. 
Let darkness and the shadow of death stain it. Let a cloud dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. As for that night, let darkness seize upon it. Let it not be joined unto the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Lo, let that night be solitary. Let no joyful voice come therein. Notice what he's doing. He cursed his day. He cursed his day. You've got to be in bad shape to wish you had never been born. You've got to be in a bad place to wish you had never been born. Your grief would have to be very great in order to be in the place where Job is. And listen, Job is not a drama queen. Job's not exaggerating. Job's not someone who is prone to hyperbole. Job is, Job is really feeling this. Understand me this morning. Job is feeling this deep-seated grief that's very heavy upon him. And he is lamenting the very day he was born. In verse 8, there's an interesting usage of Hebrew words here. Let them curse it that curse the day who are ready to raise up their mourning. Now, if you do a little word study there, that last little phrase, their mourning, their mourning, and that's not mourning as in the day, but mourning as in grief, mourning over something, is the, is the Hebrew word Leviathan. The word Leviathan literally means twisted up. And, and if you think about it, that's, later on, this word is literally used by God to describe a creature of the sea, uh, a sea serpent of some sort, a huge creature. Could it be a whale? Possibly. Could it be something else? I don't know. Could it be some sort of dinosaur-like creature? I don't know. But the word Leviathan here is used in a symbolic way. In ancient times, the ancient myths that Job would have been familiar with. Job probably grew up and probably lived in the, in the Mesopotamian area. He probably lived near the, in or near the city of Sumer, which is uh, well known, was it's probably the area where Abraham came from. He came out of Ur of the Chaldees. He came from that Mesopotamian region. And uh, we're told in several places that, that the fathers of Abraham, and Abraham himself, when he was a young man, worshipped false gods and were, were privy to all sorts of false stories and false religions. And in that area, there was a story about uh, creation and about uh, the gods of that time that involved a creature called Leviathan, which represented chaos and turmoil. In other words, Leviathan was almost like a satanic creature in that day. Now, I don't know, I know this. I'm not saying Job was, Job clearly was not worshiping uh, pagan gods, but my point about that is they apparently used that term symbolically to denote chaos and really, really bad stuff. <laughs> okay? Now, literally, it's used to denote a creature. Uh, but in this place, you'll notice the King James translators translated it as, uh, as, as referencing mourning and grief. So in that day, for Job to use that word, it would have, it would have meant something. It would, have, it would have really shown forth the depth of his heart's suffering. It's about as low as it gets, right? To say, I wish I'd never been born. I wish... I'd never even been conceived. But Job gets even lower than that. He not only cursed his day, he questioned his life. 
Look as we keep reading. He said, Let the stars of the twilight thereof be dark. Let it look for light, but have none. Neither let it see the dawning of the day, because it shut up not the doors of my mother's womb, nor hid sorrow from mine eyes. And now look at verse 11. Why died I not from the womb? Why did I not give up the ghost when I came out of the belly? In other words, why wasn't I a stillborn child? If, if, if it would have been better if I'd never even been conceived. If I'd never even existed, it would be better. But, but since, I, since I was conceived and since I, I was brought forth from the womb, why didn't I just die as a child? Over in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, in verse 2, there's a statement there that reminds me a lot of this. And you recall that the book of Ecclesiastes is a book about under the sun. Remember that. It's about under the sun. What we see under the sun. If your focus is only under the sun, you'll end up where the writer of Ecclesiastes ends up. And in chapter 4, you know, if you don't have a vision of God, if you don't have a vertical view, in chapter 4, in verse 2, well, verse 1, he says, So I return and considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of such as were oppressed, they had no comforter. And on the side of the oppressors, there was, their oppressors there was power, but they had no comforter. Wherefore, in other words, because of all I've seen and all I've experienced under the sun. Job, you're in the same position, right? All you've seen is under the sun. He hasn't had that heavenly view yet. Uh, and he, he said, because of this, wherefore I praise the dead, which are already dead, more than the living, which are yet alive. Yea, better is he than both they which hath not yet which hath not yet been, who hath not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. In other words, it's better for everybody if they were never if they were if they died as a child. It's better for everybody to have not been born. It's better to have been uh, brought forth as a stillborn child than to be where I am today. Notice as we keep reading. Why died I, verse 11, Job 3, why died I not from the womb? Why did I not give up the ghost when I came out of the belly? Why did the knees prevent me? Why the breast that I should suck? For now should I have lain still and been quiet. I should have slept. Then had I been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth, which built desolate places for themselves, or with princes that had gold, who filled their houses with silver, or as a hidden, untimely birth. I had not been as infants which never saw the light. It would be better for me if I had died before I was born. There the wicked, because see, this is his interesting description of death, and it's somewhat accurate. There the wicked cease from troubling. There the weary be at rest. There the prisoners rest together. They hear not the force of the oppressor. The small and great are there, and the servant is free from his master. Why am I even alive? Why was I ever conceived? He cursed his day, and then he questioned his life. And now, notice that he longs for death. He longs for death. Look at verse 20. Wherefore is light given to him that is in misery and life under the bitter and soul, which long for death, but it cometh not, and dig for it more than for hid treasures which rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they can find the grave. My grandmother McCool died in 2005 at age 90, I think it was. And for the last three or four years, Aunt Loreen knows what I'm talking about. For the last three or four years, she had gotten bedridden. Well, not exactly bedridden, but she couldn't get out from home. She could sit in her recliner there. 
and she was just miserable. She was having heart issues, and just things got worse and worse. And I can't tell you how many times she would say to me when I'd go visit her, son, I just can't get no better, but I can't get no worse. You know, she'd have been glad to get better, but if she couldn't get better, she'd have left to just gone ahead and died. That's, that's where my grandmother was, same place Job is. Why can't I just die? Why can't I? I'm ready. I'm tired. Let me, let me die. Let me go. You know, one of the things that we do not believe in as primitive Baptists is that we should take our own lives. We don't believe that. We believe that life and death ought to be left in the hands of the Lord. Okay? We also don't believe that uh, the way we leave this world affects where we end up. <laughs> Sometimes, some teach that suicide means that, we, that you die and go to hell. Let me tell you something. If you're one of God's children, if you're one of his that was chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world that he died for on the cross, that he loved from eternity past, you're going to be with him. Okay? You're going to be with him. We, I, many of us have been touched in our families and in our friends, circle of friends by suicide. Suicide doesn't take us to hell. Let me tell you, if you're a child of God, you'll be in heaven. But suicide is not something that we should ever embrace, okay? Because there's reason God is leaving us here. My grandmother, one of the reasons is the same reason I believe God left Job here. She was one of the best examples of patient endurance and suffering that I've ever had in my own personal life because she endured the end don't don't ever think you don't have a place in this world as long as you're here God has a use for you okay God has a use for you but he longed for death Elijah got there didn't he Elijah got out under a juniper tree and said Lord there's no point in my life anymore take me home he had just won that great battle brother Mac he had just he had just destroyed 800 prophets of Baal He'd call fire down from heaven onto the, 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 the trench that was full of water and, the, and, the, and the, the, uh, uh, the wood of the sacrifice that was soaked with water. And, you know, as I've always said, water puts out fire, right? But in Elijah's case, fire put out water. <laughs> fire took it. He burned it up. There wasn't anything. Burned the stones up. There's a reason we have stone fireplaces. It's because fire won't burn it up. But the fire of God burned it up. And then he began to run scared into the wilderness. He began to, 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 to run and flee from Jezebel. said, Lord, you know, that's my problem. You know when I have the hardest struggle with depression? It's after the greatest victories and highest mountaintops of my life. You know, you get up to the mountaintop and then suddenly the next thing you know, I mean, it wouldn't be a day or so. Sherry will tell you, don't ask her. I don't want her to talk about how bad I am. She would tell you, I'll be flying high, and the next morning I'll be as low as if I were in the Marianas Trench out in the Pacific Ocean. I just, but that's what happened to him. He thought it was over, and God still had work for him to do. God still had, he still had work to do that was greater than the work he'd already done. He had to anoint two kings and his successor. And by the way, Elijah never died. <laughs> I love that. Elijah sitting out under the juniper tree said, Lord, I want to die. Elijah's suicidal. He's wanting to die. He's, he's done with life. There's no, and there's nobody left but me. You know, that's another thing, lie that the devil will tell you. There's nobody left. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. No, nobody left but me out there. He said, Elijah, I've got 7,000 that haven't bowed their knee to Baal. <laughs> I've got people you don't know about. Anytime you get to thinking that God's work is all wrapped up in you, you got problems. 
Yeah, oh, when I'm gone, Lord, it'll be over. I guess you might as well come back because your work here on earth will be done when I'm gone, right? No, I'm sorry to tell you, you're not that important to the kingdom of God. <laughs> you're important. We want you. Don't go away for your saying, Chris, Brother Chris said you don't matter. You do matter, but you don't matter that much. <laughs> God's going to get his work done with or without you. But here's Job. I'm so miserable. I want to die. Listen as we finish this up here. Verse 23, why is light given to a man whose way is hid, whom God hath hedged in? For my sighing cometh before I eat, and my roarings are poured out like the waters. Now listen to this, this verses 25 and 26. I really get this. For the thing which I greatly feared is come upon me, and that which I was afraid of is come unto me. You know what bothers me more than anything else? You know when I'm the most afraid, seems like? It's when everything's going good. You know, I, I guess I just can't, you know, I've, everything's going great. I've got all my ducks in a row. Life is good. And you know, I feel like I'm sitting here just waiting for the other shoe to drop. I'm just waiting for the problems. You know, that's Job. He's... You remember what he did? He prayed for his children and he sacrificed for them. And he was, so, he was so happy with them. They loved each other. They were such a loving family. They were all together. They'd go to each one's house on a different day. They wanted to be together. And Job's just sitting there. I can just see Job said, Lord, I know the bad's coming. I know it's coming. When is it coming? I'm afraid of it. You know, that's, that's me sometimes. And sometimes that, that can be a healthy thing. But, but as I've said many times, there's a ditch on both sides of the road. You can get in the ditch of pride on one side, and you can get in the ditch of depression on the other, okay? Job says, that which I greatly feared has come upon me. I was not in safety, neither had I rest, neither was I quiet, and yet trouble came. What a, what a terrible outpouring. What, why is, remember the patience of Job in, verse, in chapters 1 and 2? What, what's happened to Job here? What's happened? What's the motivation behind this? Because we see him breaking a little bit. We see a crack. We see a chink in the armor here, right? He begins to, he begins to break a little. Why? Well, maybe, maybe his wife got to him. Remember in chapter 2 and verse 9, his wife said unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. His very life's companion lost faith and began to encourage him to commit sin. Maybe his wife got to him. Maybe his friends got to him. The seven days of silence, you know, that can be a good thing. But it also, maybe he had hoped they had the answers. Maybe he hoped that they were going to come tell him what was going on and lift him up. And eventually when they do try to tell him, they're so off. They're so far off of the truth. Maybe the devil got to him. I suspect Satan is still there watching. We don't read about his name anymore, but he's afflicted him. And Satan likes to glory in his handiwork. If he can destroy you, child of God, he will gloat over it. Maybe the devil got to him. But whatever the motivation, Job is beginning to crumble under the weight of his sufferings. And I want you to notice something. God doesn't answer Job. Job doesn't know what all has happened between God and Satan. He doesn't know where God is in all this and what Satan's been doing. God doesn't answer Job. What are we to make of that? May I suggest to you this morning that when God doesn't answer our questions, that means we already know enough to pass the test. When God doesn't answer us, 
That means we've already got enough information to pass the test. And we really do, don't we? Job didn't have this. We've got this. This scripture. Job didn't have it. So let's, let's close this out today by, by talking about a few. First of all, remember, Job knew nothing about the interactions between God and Satan. He didn't know about God being proud of him and saying, look at Job, he's, he's doing so well. And say, he knew nothing about Satan desiring to get him and, and accusing him falsely. He was also oblivious, it appears, to his own self-righteousness and pride. He apparently has not figured out yet because we know from the scriptures and from what we're told that suffering is not always the result of one's sin. It's not always the chastening of God. Remember that at Psalm 130 and verse 3, the psalmist says, If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? Certainly that applies in eternity, but that applies here and now as well. You know, I'm so thankful, as Brother Buddy has taught us many times, that our, our chastening in this life is not a one-for-one deal. In other words, every sin we commit doesn't get uh, a punishment. You know, praise God, He's merciful to us. Praise God, He passes over us so many times. Certainly, He passed over all of our sins in eternity. Praise God for that. But in this life, if in this life, uh, you know, if, if, if I didn't expect to see the goodness of God in this life, I would faint, as the psalmist said. He's good to us here and now. It's not that sin can slide by unpaid for. It's just that Christ has paid for every single sin of every single elect child of God. Which brings me to the question that I asked earlier. Does this remind you of anything? When it came to me yesterday, it brought tears to my eyes. Job is crying out from the depths of his heart. And we know that God is there. There was a man named Jesus Christ who cried out from the depths of his heart, who went to a garden, and we're told he was sore amazed, and he was very heavy. The word sore amazed literally means thoroughly terrified. The word very heavy is the strongest of three Greek words to denote depression. He was that bad off. He was very sorrowful even unto death. That means he was overcome with sorrow so much that it, that it could have caused death in a normal person. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Job didn't know this was coming. Job didn't know what was ahead. Jesus Christ knew exactly what was coming. It's one thing, as Brother David Crawford told us, to go and not know but it's another to go when you know. And Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ went to Gethsemane and he knew exactly what he was facing on Calvary. And there came a point in his life where he was abandoned in a sense by God. I can't explain it. I can't, I can't denote the exact time frames and exactly what happened, but I know this. On the cross of Calvary, Jesus Christ became that which God hated. He became the sin that He despised. He became that which could not come into the presence of God. And the Godhead, the 
great three in one, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who had been in perfect fellowship and harmony from eternity past and are now today and for eternity future in perfect harmony and fellowship. That perfect harmony and fellowship was broken on the cross. He cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I'll tell you why he was forsaking him. It was for Job. It was for Chris. It was for Glendon and Mackie and Buddy and anybody. Put your name in here. He was forsaken. And all of the cries that Job uh, uttered in his despair are nothing compared to that which Christ uttered as he went that road to Calvary. Oh, Oh, how glorious. How awfully glorious it is to think about Jesus who was about to be abandoned in a sense, to be separated by sin, not his own, but yours and mine, to be separated from his Father. Praise God. Praise God for a Savior who would banish himself in one sense on behalf of his beloved. So as as terrible as the grief of Job was, James's statement about the book of Job and the experience of Job still applies. He says, you've heard of the patience of Job. We might even say you've heard of the pain and the suffering of Job. But you've also heard about the end of the Lord. He's very pitiful and of tender mercies. You know why? Because he did not spare his son. Because his son did not spare himself. He went all the way for you and I who he had loved from before the foundation of the world with an everlasting love and whom he had predestinated to be conformed to his image one day and whom he will come back and get. So if your suffering approaches that of Job's, I'm sorry for you. But praise God, that's not the end of the matter because the end of the Lord is pity and mercy. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.